I'm Rick Steves. One of the biggest names in travel writing and my inspiration way back when is Arthur Fromer. And he's still going strong today. Not only is it cheaper, it's better. It gives you an authentic experience. For the last 50 years, Arthur Fromer has helped Americans enjoy affordable and authentic travel experiences while interacting thoughtfully with locals all over the globe. His pioneering guidebooks opened up the world to everyday Americans. Without Arthur's $5 a day guidebooks, I probably never would have traveled through the back door. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll talk with a man who's dedicated his career to making travel accessible to middle-class America. While the days of doing Europe on $5 a day are long gone, Arthur Fromer has never stopped finding ways to keep us all traveling smartly and thoughtfully. Our conversation with Arthur Fromer begins in a moment. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we have a treat. We've got Arthur Fromer joining us to uh, give us a look at his work as a travel teacher. And I tell you, Arthur Fromer has been uh, the man who made independent travel accessible to to regular working people. And Arthur's got a passion for uh, meeting people and, and a firm belief that in so many ways, the less you spend, the more you experience. A whole generation of travelers in the United States grew up on Arthur Fromer's $5 a day guidebooks. And Arthur is still going strong. Every time I bump into Arthur, Arthur, he's got some exciting travel teaching project going on, and it's just great to have you with us, Arthur Fromer. Thanks for joining us. Well, it's great to be with you, Rick. Now, your your career is, uh, it's been, uh, well, trace your career in just a nutshell, because uh, a, a lot of us know your Europe on $5 a day, but we don't know uh, exactly uh, how it got started and, and then what you've been doing uh, since then. Rick, it, it got started exactly 50 years ago next year, 2007. Are going to be is going to be the fiftieth um, anniversary right. of the publication of Europe on five dollars a day, and to mark the occasion, uh, Wiley and Company is going to reissue the original book. They've gotten a, a copy of the original edition from me. They're photographing it. It will be in the newsstands exactly as it was fifty years ago, starting uh, late this year and uh, in the two thousand and seven uh, calendar year. Is that going to be in conjunction with the up-to-date book, or people will just get well, that? Well, there, a... there are also there are lots of books that we publish on on uh, sure. Europe now, obviously. But this will be a little glimpse backward into the time when the dollar was incredibly strong, when Europe was just uh, emerging from the ravages of World War II, and when I, as a young GI, discovered the glories of, of Europe. I was drafted into the army at the time of the Korean War, and to my amazement, after being trained for Korea, I was sent to Europe instead, and it was a glorious opportunity for me. It all took place at a time when no Americans in any number traveled uh, to Europe. Uh, you would hear of a, uh, of a friend of yours whose rich uncle had given them a graduation present of a trip to Europe, but you never thought that you yourself would get there. And I found myself in Europe as a GI, using every weekend and every leave that I could, uh, I could uh, devote to traveling within Europe, no matter how little money I had. And it suddenly dawned on me in the course of traveling that I was having a wonderful time because I had no money. Because I had no money, I was staying with private families, or I was staying in, uh, in church basements, let's say, scattered in various, through various uh, European cities. I was eating my meals uh, picnic style. I was using local transportation. I was sitting at sidewalk cafes uh, arguing with Europeans, having the time of my life. And I recall that one day I saw a tour bus pass in front of me, and there were 40 tourists, their noses pressed against the glass, separated from the life of Paris at that time by the by the steel walls of the bus and it just it just became so crystal clear to me that if i had any money i would have been in the bus but because i had no money i was having this marvelous time uh, of traveling to europe and the idea occurred to me of doing a travel guide i it it was uh, not meant to uh, shove me into a different profession i am a lawyer by by training i had just graduated from yale law school but I sat down and I wrote a little guidebook. So first uh, of all, this was for your fellow GIs to use the their weekends. The first book was called The GI's Guide to Traveling in Europe. Okay. Uh, that was published in 1950, 
five, I believe it was, and then I was finally released from the Army. I came home, I embarked on the practice of law, and I thought to myself I should do the same thing for civilians. And I re- went back to Europe during my first vacation from my law firm, and I redid the book, and I called it Europe on $5 a Day. And within a few weeks after it came out, my life was changed. It, it, uh, so you knew you had struck some sort of chord with the uh, people who would like to travel? Well, it sold out almost immediately. I wow. remember we printed we printed 5,000 copies initially, mm-hmm. and they sold out almost the first mm-hmm. afternoon. And then I started publishing Mexico on $5 a day and the Caribbean on $10 a day and New York on $5 a day. And there came a point several years uh, later that I had to make the decision between continuing to practice law or going into travel publishing, and I, I made the decision uh, to go into the travel industry. Wow. Now, when you think back to the 1950s, the dollar would just go like... Oh, incredibly strong. You could, you could get time. a hotel for, for like a dollar a night, couldn't you? And you, you really didn't have to worry about where you ate. You walked into any restaurant, and as long as you avoided the obviously expensive dishes, you, you lived very, very uh, easily on, on the $5 that I was recommending at that time. Yeah. I used your book uh, my, on my very first trip with my parents in 1969, and I remember you could get a cuckoo clock for like $2.25. <laughs> Well, you'll see that in the in the 50, 50th anniversary edition of the book. You'll you'll see hotels uh, selling for a dollar ninety five. You'll right. see meals for seventy five cents. Had anyone told me then what what inflation would do to those prices, I don't think I would have believed them. Yeah, you probably get tired of hearing people talk, joke about how little five dollars a day will get you now. Will get you today. My son did a trip just this summer on fifty dollars a day plus his year rail pass, and I think. Well, except there are some places though that have maintained an unusually low price structure. If you go to the island of Bali, you can live almost on five dollars a day. In certain areas of Bali, you can go to. Uh, even today in in Europe, well, not not in Europe, but even in Croatia, you're going to spend more than five dollars. Right. But uh, it, it's very funny that uh, in our current day travel guides to Europe, there are some of the very same hotels that I recommended back in 1957. Uh, their prices have gone up, but they have remained relatively the the bargains of the of the area. You know, I, I noticed that I was on. I was looking through your one of your books, uh, 1970 edition is the edition I've got in 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 Rome on Via Firenze. Uh, you've got uh, Aberdeen Hotel, the Narditsi, Texas, right. Seven Hills, and uh, those places are all still in business today. They're they're still in business. That's the that's a little side street off the Via Nazionale, yeah. which goes downhill and ends up at uh, one of the opera houses of, of Rome. I remember it very well, and I remember the uh, the joy of staying at the Pensioni Seven Hills and the Pensioni Texas in those days, mm-hmm. which were located on the Via Firenze. You know what's ironic? I read your entries back in the, in the late 60s, and those two hotels were the nice hotels then. Those are terrible hotels in the year 2005. They're still in business, and the neighboring hotels in Arditzi and Aberdeen have invested in themselves, and they're up-to-date and still very charming. Of course, and you know, uh, you know management's changed. Oh, it's amazing uh, how management's changed. It's a changed. perilous process writing a travel guide. I, I find particular difficulty in recommending restaurants. You know, the mortality rate in restaurants is so great that I've actually established a rule now in the uh, among the former travel writers of all, of all of our travel guides that they are not to recommend a restaurant unless it has already been in business for at least three years. Mm-hmm. The the mortality rate is so great the first year mm-hmm. and the second year that the chances are that if you recommend a new restaurant, it will not be there the next year, or it will have changed ownership, it will have changed policies, and, and become not the, the great place it once was. You know, I find, Arthur, that the most reliable recommendations for restaurants are the ones that are mom-and-pop owned and operated because they're in business because that's their niche in life, that's their passion and they're going to make it work and they'll be there of next course, year and they care about their customers. And I know that your books are filled with these little mom-and-pop places that I think are really offering the best value. They are the best values. Uh, they are also the best values in accommodations. Increasingly, with the, with the price of the, the cost of the euro uh, hitting such levels, that we are now recommending alternative lodgings, lodgings that are not standard hotels. We're mm-hmm. going back to the original conception of the bed and breakfast house, a family that is not in the business of hotel keeping, but have one or two uh, spare rooms into which they can put transient tourists, and who make those available usually through the local tourist office, 
I have uh, talked at great length with a great many of our authors to urge them to seek out this type of opportunity. Not only is it cheaper, it's better. It gives you an authentic experience. You're not uh, spending your time with some faceless civil servant who speaks perfect English and who runs a, a hotel putting up 30 or 40 people a night, but rather you're, you're living with an actual real-life family and you're having breakfast every morning at the very breakfast table where they are having breakfast and you are at least experiencing something of the family life of Europe in that way. You can actually join them in the evening to watch TV and have tea and cookies. It's just an amazing intimacy. You can do, you can do that too. I'm, I'm uh, speaking with Arthur Fromer, who is uh, famous as the man who brought us Europe on $5 a day. To find out what Arthur's been doing lately, you can always go to his website. It's fromers.com, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S.com. Arthur Fromer is sort of uh, my inspiration and mentor, and I'm just, uh, it's great to kind of reminisce with Arthur about his writing career and find out how much of what turned Arthur on to travel back in the 50s and 60s is still applicable today. Arthur, I'd like to talk just a bit about the, the publishing uh, experience you had and so on. You're mm-hmm. very... Uh, first books, not the very first edition, but once uh, Europe on $5 a day was sort of established, you had a standard design where you featured, what, 15 or 18 great cities? That's right, in the Europe book, and I brought out the Europe book myself year after year after year, but the the other books became much more uh, standard books. There came a time when I had built up the series to 58 titles that I was literally publishing from my living room. I was a staff of one. You couldn't have researched all that yourself, so you were going no, there, no, I guess. No, no, no. I then started hiring other people to write right. other $5-a-day books under their byline. People like John Wilcock, people like Joan Hamburg. These are well-known people who have become well-known journalists and who were uh, financed by me and sent to Mexico, sent to Japan, right. sent to the Caribbean, uh, and, and they wrote good books. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away If you can use some exotic booze There's a bar in far Bombay Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru In Llama Land, there's a one-man band, and he'll toot his flute for you. Come fly with me, let's take off in the blue. Coming up in just a moment, we'll look back at the classic Europe on $5 a day guidebook series from Arthur Fromer as we continue our special conversation with the man who inspired today's generation of guidebook writers. You're traveling with Arthur Fromer and Rick Steves. As always, if you missed part of this interview or want to share it with a travel partner, you can hear it anytime on our website. Whether you're interested in Arthur Fromer, sniffing out truffles in the Tuscan countryside, riding a felucca down the Nile, or going Rastafarian in Belize, you'll find a world of travel fun in our archive of past shows. Just visit ricksteves.com and head for the radio section. Or if you have an MP3 player, you can download any of our shows as podcasts from many of the popular podcast websites. And you can continue the conversation online by posting your thoughts and comments on our radio message boards or by participating in one of the topics on our graffiti wall section at ricksteves.com. And here's some good news. It's all free. More with Arthur Fromer in a minute as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Sono Cecilia Bottai, produco vini di qualità in Italia e stiamo viaggiando con Rick Steves. And that's the Italian for I am Cecilia Bottai, I make fine wines in Italy and we are traveling with Rick Steves. Sono Cecilia Bottai, produco vini di qualità in Italia e stiamo viaggiando con Rick Steves. Grazie. <laughs> We're visiting with travel guidebook legend Arthur Fromer on today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. The name Fromer has been synonymous with great guidebooks for some 50 years now. And without Arthur's groundbreaking guidebook, Europe on $5 a day, I don't think I would have ever discovered Europe through the back door. Arthur Fromer inspired the first generation ever of independent American travelers. It's a real privilege to have him as our guest. Let's stick just for a minute to Europe and your, your, the classic Europe on $5 a day book, if you don't mind. Tell yes. us about the early days when you actually went. I've got a, there's a great picture of you peering through a window in the back cover <laughs> of your books, and I, just, I can relate to that because anybody who writes guidebooks. I know that. I, know that. Yeah. I used to do the Europe book myself from beginning to end. I would go to Europe several months a year, and I would walk the streets from 6 a.m. in the morning, as you do, to do your guidebooks. I stayed away from the tourist offices. I found that not only were they not helpful, they were positively harmful. Their their effort was to was to uh, get you to, uh, to to patronize the obvious uh, established places. I found that the way to write a guidebook was to wander around the city on my own, walking at random, pestering people, asking them where they ate at night, asking them where when they had a relative coming to visit them, what hotel did they recommend for their people? And for the first, uh, it was close to the first 25 yearly editions of Europe on $5 a day, not only did no one else help me with it, but no one else even saw the manuscript prior to the time that it went to the printer. Wow, you must I have always been an anti-copy editor in my career. I feel that handing a manuscript like that to someone else who usually is a is a young ma- uh, English major who has just graduated from college, is to run the risk that all the personality and flavor of the book will get squeezed out. Uh, the early editions of Europe on five dollars a day were very emotional. They were they were lyrical. In fact, I, I uh, uh, in my descriptions well, they were. Of- and and that's why people fell in love with these books is because they were traveling with you. I get the feeling that you very you feel very strongly about that. You've got your name on hundreds of copies of course. now. Well, don't you feel like today uh, your personality is not really uh, a personality is not in these books because we're, of we're this editor problem? We're constantly trying to get back to it. I am yeah. trying constantly urging our writers uh, to express themselves, and and we we tell all of them we're not going to censor you. You what you believe will go out in print. For many years, we published a guidebook to Mexico by a writer who detested Mexican food. He spent his entire Mexico City chapter on telling you where you could find a good uh, tuna fish salad sandwich. We never changed a word of what he wrote in order to make certain that the Frommer Guides reflected the eccentricities, the judgment, the personality of one person. Uh, My daughter is now bringing out her own series of travel guides within the Frommer line that will be called Pauline Frommer Guides. They're going to be published this uh, June. She wrote the guidebook to New York. She spent uh, two years doing it. Uh, she has also published a guidebook to Hawaii and to Italy that she has carefully supervised and wor- worked with really top-notch writers in doing it. And that is, those are going to be books that, that get back to the original form of Europe on $5 right. a day, intensely personal, intensely opinionated, critical. Um, well, Good for, good for you and Pauline. That's great. Arthur, you know, in the heyday of Europe on $5 a day when there wasn't much competition, your listing could make or break uh, a small business all over Europe. Uh, well, tell us about, was that stressful that, for you? Sometimes you dismay me. <laughs> yeah, it would, it's kind of because I know that I have to be loyal to my readers even if I like the people running that business. Of and, course. And I'll have to drop them if something goes wrong, even well, if I like them as exactly friends. You have exactly the same problem. I, I would recommend a little uh, two-star hotel in Paris. I would come back the next year and there'd be an elevator in that hotel. And I would walk in and say, Monsieur, you have an elevator. And he would say, it is your book that built that elevator. And sadly, I would go out to the sidewalk and cross out the book from my <laughs> manuscript, the, the hotel rather, from my manuscript. I'd have to drop it 
because its prices had become <laughs> too high. And they brag about the renovation they did, and they don't realize they've gutted the place of all the character and charm that got them exactly. in the book in the first place. <laughs> exactly. Now, I know that you've got quite a spirit that way, because uh, didn't you, I, I read that you, um, you, were, you actually wrote a guidebook, and you, you kind of panned the, the town of Branson, because it <laughs> well, was... Well, the, uh, the town of Branson. When, when Branson, Missouri became well-known in the press, when it was the subject of a 60 Minutes interview, I decided that I would write the guidebook to Branson for our company. I come from the state of Missouri. I lived in Missouri until I was 14. I got on a plane. I went to Branson. I went into my first celebrity theater, and I nearly fell off my chair. I so hated the presentations that were being made. All these country uh, musical stars, many of whom have prison records, have been dope addicts, uh, utilize their stages, in many cases, in Branson to proselytize politically and uh, religiously. And I so hated this. Mm-hmm. I felt that this was so uh, distorted and one-sided that I wrote the first travel guide that, in effect, tells the reader not to go to the <laughs> destination, which is the subject of the book. And I wrote this guidebook to Branson, which caused a, uh, a an earthquake in Branson, but it also, by the way, but it also integrated Branson. When I wrote my guidebook, I noticed mm-hmm. I saw that there was not a single black American employed in any of the celebrity theaters, with one exception in, in uh, Branson. And I said that this city followed a policy of total racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch picked that up. The Kansas City Star picked that up and wrote articles about my guidebook to Branson and about the the uh, elimination of job opportunities for African-Americans in Branson. And today, I'm very proud to tell you that each one of these theaters has at least one token black that they that they employ because really? of my guidebook. I've always been very proud of that. You know, a guidebook can actually make changes like that. It can be something important like uh, race relations, or it can even be something as silly as putting the uh, rubber uh, pads under the sheets on a bed. I've got a, ho- <laughs> I've got a hotel I love in Madrid, and, and they're worried about people staining their mattress, so they put rubber, rubber mats, sheets on. and they're oh, so sweaty. That, and I just told something. my readers, this is a great rest hotel, but they don't get it. If you ball up your rubber mat and throw it into the right. hallway, maybe they'll get the thing, and the next year there was no more rubber mats under the sheets. Rick, knowing your own sensitivity to social issues and your own social conscience, I think you would agree that... that these books are not tend to reflect our own outlook in in areas broader than simply the recommendation of hotels and restaurants. Oh, they uh, really? I tend to encourage our writers to make political comments if they want to 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 uh, pass judgments on institutions, on cultures, on cities that they go to. Uh, one of the darkest days of my career is when I overdid that. It, I I wrote a book a guidebook to Greece in which I referred to the English-language newspaper of Athens as, quotes, practically worthless. And I was indicted. I, I, there was a criminal indictment that was handed down against me in Greece. Really? That, that would have hmm. prevented me from ever going back to Greece. I mean, if I went back to Greece, I would have had to have stood trial. And because you I, had an opinion. If I had lost, I would have huh. gone to jail. Wow. And we, I've always been ashamed that we finally made a pay payment to the publisher of that miserable newspaper and, uh, and, and settled the case. But I was proud of the fact that we took that stand, and, and we take a great many stands like that. We're, we're proud in the Frommer guidebooks that we were the first major guidebook series that wrote about travel opportunities for gays and lesbians, and that mm-hmm. actually pointed out hotels or restaurants where gays and lesbians were were made especially welcome. Well, I think uh, travel does make you more accepting of alternative lifestyles. Yes, yeah, oh, it certainly does. I mean, it's it's a wonderful liberating and liberalizing. Well, let's talk uh, about process. this a little bit. Would you call your is it fair to call you a, a liberal, Arthur? Yes, I am. And Proud liberal. Did did travel um, contribute to your liberal outlook? No, I I don't think so. I I grew up uh, in the 1930s uh in the midst of the depression going to a school where some children appeared without shoes on right. on occasion. I grew up worshiping uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Okay, so uh, you're, a, you're born and raised liberal then. I was born and raised liberal, and I had parents who felt that way, and I had parents who, who yeah. were European-born, who had a very tough time of it in the United States, but who succeeded. I became patriotic about the United States, Yeah, but I think that patriotism consists 
of continuing to work to give meaning to Jefferson's statement that all men are created equal. Yes. And and that that animates a great many of my own beliefs. Well, you may find you may find this interesting, but when I've I've made a few statements politically in my writing and it's uh, offended or, or you know um, put off a few people and I've actually had emails saying we're never going to use your books anymore. We're going to Arthur Fromer. And uh, thinking you're less liberal <laughs> they than me, know. <laughs> but they're jumping from one liberal to another. That we are kindred spirits. <laughs> Absolutely. Hey, Arthur, I remember when uh, I was using your book in the old days. Uh, your your first wife, Hope, was uh, had a very uh, beautiful little part in the book. Um, yes. How did that happen? And, and, and that how did happened you find because that? many times I would be going inside a hotel and she'd be staying on the standing on the sidewalk with nothing to do, and she got bored, and we we talked it out. And I said, okay, you'll do, I'll do the practical work. I'll do the scut work. I'll go to the hotels, the restaurants, and all the like. But you will do the sightseeing. And, uh, and Hope wrote her own, uh, her own uh, surveys of the sightseeing opportunities in various cities and did it very, very well. And it was a wonderful uh, contrast to your style and everything, and it really uh, gave the book an extra dimension, and I think people appreciated that. Well, thank you. Thank yeah. you for that. Let's talk just a little bit about the publishing uh, business. First of all, you were self-published. Yes, I, I, I published my own books for the first uh, 10 and 15 years of the Frommer Guides. Is that right? That's quite industrious back in the 50s. It came about by accident. The first book that I published was published overseas when I was in the Army, and there was no publisher to whom I could bring the manuscript. <laughs> so I borrowed money from my mother and from various sergeants in my unit, and I took the book to a printer. When the time came that I then wrote Europe on $5 a day back at home in New York City, it never even occurred to me to take the manuscript to a publisher. I thought, you, you write a book, you take it to a printer, you get it printed, and you distribute it. And that's exactly what I did with with uh, Europe on Five Dollars a Day, and and I brought the Fromer series up to fifty eight titles before I suddenly realized that it had gotten to a stage where it needed a much bigger organization and it needed much greater resources that I could bring to it. And, then and you, I then sold you... the company to uh, to Simon and Schuster, but took back a very uh, strong consultancy agreement. Uh, that have involved me in the in the books ever since. Oh, so I didn't realize that you were self-published for more than a decade, and then when you did sell the books to Simon and Schuster, that didn't mean you were working for them for a royalty on the books, but you actually sold oh, the whole. No, I sold I sold the but I sold the company. Uh, we we were publishing oh. fifty eight titles, yeah. and they convinced me that with their pocketbook subsidiary, they could get much greater distribution that, and on better terms, they could print it much more cheaply. Uh, the the books then went through several hands because uh, uh, they they eventually ended up in, in in a wonderful place that I'm very proud of. They they ended up with the with John Wiley and Sons. Uh, John Wiley and Sons is a publisher that of 200 years standing. Mm-hmm. John Wiley was a printer in the financial district of of uh, New York. In fact, I've I've heard that he was the man who printed Common Sense by Tom Paine, Whoa, by there's Thomas a, Paine. There's a publishing history. And it's, it's a major enterprise now. It's, it's, it's uh, a lot of people work full-time on the Fromer Guides. Tell us what it's like to sell the, the rights to your name. Was there any uh, regrets? Was that abused? Did, uh, I mean, you know, people It hasn't been abused yet. It, uh, I keep a, a close eye on it and keep constantly haranguing the people who are publishing under my name about the principles for which the name stands. Do you have rights to do that? Yes. I'm a full-scale consultant to the books. I'm, oh, I'm quite often there, although there is a very fine publisher of the books right. now, Mike Spring, but I am constantly having lunch with Mike and talking with him. Uh, he is now working very closely with Pauline, my daughter, in the publication of the uh, from of the Pauline Fromer travel guides that will be out this uh, June. Yes. All right. Now I'm, I'm talking with Arthur Fromer, and this is uh, Travel with Rick Steves. And Arthur, something's curious to me. In uh, in in the previous generation, there were these big name travel writers. Of course, Arthur Fromer, Eugene Fodor, uh, Stephen Birnbaum, Temple Fielding. And mm-hmm. today, there's not really any big names out there. There's uh, Rick Steves. Well, there's Rick Steves. <laughs> there's and, Rick Steves. <laughs> but is this uh, is this just accidental, or is there something about the dynamic of the travel publishing business that would rather not have the big names? You know, I, I don't think I can answer that. There, there was a time when uh, the uh, the founders of the other lines were very, very, uh, very, very active. I was in a heated correspondence with Temple Fielding at once. I knew Steve Birnbaum. 
um, and the various other people who who uh, started a series of travel guides. They were awfully good guides. Yeah, they're great guides. And uh, but when when those people retired, uh, they became corporate entities, and it just um... you know that none of them actually retired. Uh, none of them retired. They all died in harness. They never stopped. Is that right? Uh, Temple Fielding died while he was still writing his guidebook to Europe. Oh. Steve Birnbaum very tragically died when he was in his uh, late 50s. He was not an elderly man. Uh, Eugene Fodor, well, he had more or less retired, but uh, Eugene Fodor was not a writer of his own guidebooks. He was mainly a businessman who who hired journalists to put out the Fodor uh, line. Mm. But Mm. Fielding, Fromer, uh, Birnbaum were very much involved in writing travel guides. I've written a great many travel guides myself. Now, I think today, very few travel writers are actually making a royalty. I think the standard in the publishing business these days is just to pay a set fee for somebody to do the work, and then next year they'll hire somebody different to do the work. Yeah, that happens. Uh, But it's only the people who have a stake in their book who put out the books that sell well. Uh, I've... uh, I'm not a backer of that, that policy. I'm, I'm not either. I think that's a, a real sad uh, a change in the publishing world. No, no. World. A, a, a writer should have a stake in what they're doing and in what they're selling, uh, what they're writing, rather, and, and should regard the book as belonging to them in the way so yeah. that they have a responsibility uh, to it. Well, that's why you wore out so many shoes running around Europe, visiting every hotel <laughs> and every restaurant year after year. You knew year that after people year were going to... For, for a long, long time. You knew people were going to use that, and it would affect their travels, and uh, you knew the people who were running the little outfits. I'm, isn't it charming, all the little mom-and-pop businesses in Europe? That it, it, it very much is, and it was, it was exciting beyond measure to go through the 1960s and the 1970s and to be in Europe and to see almost 10% of all of the travelers walking around in various European cities carrying a copy of my guidebook. Hmm. I sometimes would stand in line at American Express to pick up my mail, and I would overhear conversations going on between people standing in front of me. I love that. On how they use the book, what was working for them, what was not working for them. I remember that I I got angry once because a man in front of me in the line was telling his friend what a terrible hotel he was staying at that he'd gotten in Fromers, from Fromers. And I interrupted, and I said, but the hotel you're talking about is a hotel that only charges $2 a night. It was one of the cheapest hotels in the entire book. It was in a section called Starvation Budget, where if you had no money left... You you would stay. It didn't even have one star. And I said, you know, isn't it, isn't it unfair of you to attack Cromer for for recommending such a hotel? And he says, well, this hotel is very gloomy. It really doesn't have any brightness to it, and uh, we're entitled to something good when we go there. We'll get out of the starvation budget category. We'll continue our conversation with Arthur Fromer in just a moment, as we see how things have changed in the five decades since Arthur introduced our parents to all those cute guest houses, pensions, and B&Bs. And you're listening to Travel with Rick Steves. A lot about the world has changed since Arthur Fromer's Europe on $5 a Day guidebooks first helped to shape the way many of us approach our world. Irish pubs, they're smoke-free, and Yugoslavia is history. All those francs, pesetas, lira, and marks are now euros. The ATM card has replaced the traveler's check, and a train actually goes nonstop from London to Paris under the English Channel in 17 minutes. And, of course, it's a challenge these days to do Europe on $100 a day. But the essential magic of travel remains, the joy of meeting people face-to-face, and the value of letting those new friends challenge all of our self-evident and God-given truths. Arthur Fromer is our special guest as we continue our conversation with one of my own travel mentors. It's on today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. 
Hey, I'm, let's let's reminisce, Arthur, for a little bit about travel in the in the good old days. I was looking through your <laughs> 1970 edition of Europe on five dollars a day. It was 600 pages. The retail price was two dollars and fifty cents. And I read in the intro, and it just occurred to me when I read that read that intro, you were such a groundbreaker and a pioneer in independent, uh, spirited people to people travel. You talked about airfares uh, from New York City to Europe about six hundred dollars, and it occurred to me Isn't that that's, something that's about the same today. Of course, that's but, the one area of travel that has not risen in price. Hotels were a dollar with breakfast, and 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 today a That's hotel right. is a hundred dollars with breakfast. That's right. And airfare has not changed a bit. The practice in those days was to go to Europe for a full month. Uh, the book hmm. was written to track the patterns of American tourists. So there, it was, it was felt in those days that you were you were going to go to Europe once in your lifetime. So right. you really have to see everything. You have to go to twelve cities in thirty days, and uh, the book was organized in a way to take care of that inclination. It really uh, was. It was city chapters. It, it was Today, as you know, the, the regional books, the books on Italy, right. the books on Spain, are the ones that people buy, and they travel much more sensibly <laughs> because <laughs> travel has become such a casual act. And back but, in the 70s, it was the Eurail Pass, all 17 countries, and it was Europe on $5 a day. And of as you course. said, now we're more uh, sophisticated, and we have short vacations. We go time and time again, and we have a little more focus. And just think, at that time, we all took off a month for vacation. I mean, and, and huh. please don't get me started on that. The vacation well, yeah. policy of <laughs> the United States is something that needs so much reform, and, and uh, it, it's a scandal. Now, Arthur, did, did travel, uh, transatlantic travel morph from sea to flying in the 50s? Did most people take a, a boat over in those days, or did everybody fly? A great still? many people at that time did take, to, did take boats. Their students in particular enjoyed what were called student boats that would be uh, huh. uh, organized to uh, stuff students eight to a cabin and take them over uh, cheaply. And you, uh, you had this wonderful sea crossing that lasted six days. Uh, now, of course, we fly there, but it, we, we see it much better today. We see it much more casually. I go to parties, and I see, hear people saying, uh, shall I go to uh, Miami or shall I go to London? <laughs> shall I go to, uh, mm-hmm. shall I visit New York or shall we go to Paris? It, it, it's wonderful how the world has become one entity, and oh, we, yeah. have, we have this incredible opportunity, which is an opportunity that shouldn't be squandered, and it's an opportunity that should be regarded as a learning opportunity. You know, one of the themes of my writings, and I know of yours as well, is that travel is not a trivial recreation. Travel is, a, is an instrument of learning. It impacts the mind in a way that, that no other activity, even that of widespread reading, quite achieves. And uh, I, I think that travel is so important that, to begin with, it's a constitutional right I don't think the government has a right to stop us from traveling wherever we want to go during in, in, in peacetime. I agree. And that, that's why I've, I've felt so horrified at the uh, uh, ban on travel to Cuba. Right. Well, if Americans knew the number one destination in the Caribbean for Germans and Canadians was Cuba, and everybody I've met has been there is just enthralled by Cuba. It's just tragic that we can't it, go It's there. totally tragic. It's totally yeah. counterproductive. You walk the streets of Havana nowadays, and you see tourists from all over the world, from every country in the world except from the United States. Yeah. Hey, take me back to Europe in the 60s here, Arthur. And uh, you know I me, mean? I'm just very Europe-focused. I remember in the old days, there was simple comforts. I, even today, there's some B&Bs in the countryside of England that still brag in their signs, hot and cold. Remember when hot and cold ran? Yeah, yeah. Most of them have tried to upgrade themselves. Many of the former B&Bs have put in private baths into various rooms. Most of the two-star hotels, in particular, have upgraded themselves to three stars by by emphasizing the private facilities that they now have. Uh, I tend to feel that nowadays that a a cost-conscious person or a person traveling on limited funds has got to go back to the original conception of the B&B. Not not to the inns of the guest houses that mm-hmm. are in business to uh, house people, but to the families that simply rent out an occasional room or so, as in Ireland, mm-hmm. which is found so so frequently there. And in many of our uh, guidebooks to Europe for for uh, 2006, we have a considerable discussion of where you find the B&Bs. Uh, you, you find them always in the tourist offices. If you go to the tourist office, even in Paris, even in London, 
and you, you inquire enough, you'll find someone that has a list of families that put up an occasional transient uh, visitor. Mm-hmm. But there are also websites now. There are also some organizations. But uh, to me, because what, what interests me mainly is the, is the, uh, the problem of the cost-conscious, low-income tourist. Uh, that type of person, it seems to me, has got to look, seek out the B&Bs nowadays. It almost has become prohibitive mm-hmm. uh, to use standard hotels. Unless you go to the institutional places, convents and monasteries convents, and hostels. monasteries, and so hostels, yeah. uh, and so on. But I really believe you get double the cultural intimacy for half the price of a hotel when you stay in somebody's home in a and b and of course. Especially, of course. And now, you know, everybody is dealing with the plight of the small farm. And uh, one way small farms make ends meet is renting out rooms these days. Mm-hmm. It's pretty standard. Which, of course, is a major movement in Italy, as you know, the agritourism oh, uh, so movement wonderful, there. Wonderful experience, yeah. yeah. You know, in the old days, uh, there was a, a notion that you, you couldn't get certain things in Europe. And it's funny, even today in my lecturing and so on, I find people asking, do they have this, that, or this over there? Oh, really? You know, they, yeah. like in the old days, I don't think you had razor blades or nylons or deodorant, and Americans would always pack them over. Uh, but people don't realize today that uh, you've got everything in your travels. Well, they don't realize that the quality of life in many European cities now exceeds that of the United States. For that matter, the per capita income in three or four of the uh, European countries is higher than it is in the United States. We, we should travel, all people should travel with a sense of humility and, and not just assume that uh, we are materially ahead of the rest of the country. We have a great deal of, to learn uh, from other people. People, other countries have experimented with different forms of social and urban organization. And we should, uh, even though we disagree with it, even mm-hmm. though we violently disagree, we should uh, Not try to absorb lessons uh, from that. That was the theme of a book that I wrote several years ago called The New World of Travel, in which I begged people to go out of their way to put themselves into, into uh, situations where they were confronted by their opposites, where they were in communities where people had a completely opposite lifestyle, theology, uh, ideology, and and test their assumptions in that type of of setting. Um, And I made a point for a long time of of deliberately going to New Age centers, to Buddhist retreats, to yoga camps. I, I... I put myself into communities of people with whom I really don't agree. I tend to be a fairly rational, rational, non-spiritual person, and yet I went to all sorts of places that believed in channeling and magic crystals and uh, communication with insects and that kind of thing. And that, to <laughs> me, that's part of the of the drama and the adventure of life. Well, that's the spirit of good travel. I think is to be and that's open good to travel this. to have too. to have your self-evident and God-given truths challenged by people who were raised differently. Of course. And you know, Arthur, I, it just occurred to me, I'm sort of philosophical about this now because my 18-year-old boy just did his first trip without his parents. He did his Europe through the gutter experience uh, running around Europe, you know, and he had a great, rich, valuable time and he didn't do any of the things I wanted him to do and he just had nothing but adventure and meeting people and I read his journal and I was just so pleased and, and thankful he had that opportunity and it oh, occurred to wonderful? me that the essential joy and adventure and value of travel today is the same as it was for me when I did that uh, vagabond trip in, in the early early 70s, and I would imagine the same when you were uh, skipping out from your base there in the 1950s. It's very much the same, very much the same, and, and uh, young people should, should be given this opportunity. Parents should encourage them uh, to go over with a youth hostel membership in their pocket and then uh, simply live off the land. I believe it. You know, there's a way to travel, and uh, this is something you've always been a champion of, is the whole notion that the less you spend, the more you experience and that we can get out of our comfort zone and and challenge ourselves from a a cultural point of view. Tell me if if you remember this, Arthur, because when I was a little kid, I remember an image of travel was uh, Americans, white Americans on big luxury cruise ships in the Caribbean throwing coins off the deck and photographing what they called little dark kids jumping for those coins. Wasn't that horrible? Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Is that just definitely. is that a standard American nineteen uh, fifties image of travel, or is that just in my mind? To a great extent, by by a certain type of American who yeah. believed that we were just the uh, the rulers of the world. We bestrode the earth. We were the only people who were well dressed, who had a lot of money. We were right. successful. Yeah. We never stopped to think that that, that countries had gone through uh, devastating mm. war with bombardments yeah. of their cities with ter- tremendous devastation from whom, which they have now largely recovered, and uh, no longer is there that tremendous disparity. Ah, yeah. And then when you, when you travel, I'll, I'll never forget sitting down with a, in a cafeteria in, in uh, where was I, Cab- 
Kabul in Afghanistan. Kabul in Afghanistan. And a a professor sat down next to me, and apparently he made this point to sit with a tourist every day at lunch. And he said, "Uh, you're American, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he said, I'm a professor here in Afghanistan. And he just said, I want you to know that uh, I eat with my fingers. And he said, a third of this planet eats with their spoons and forks like you do. And a third of the planet eats with chopsticks. And a third of the planet eats with fingers like me. And we're all just as civilized, you know. He had that little axe to grind, and I think he made that (laughs) point with me very well. He certainly did. It's a beautiful thing about traveling, and I, I think when we travel, uh, we, we get our self-assuredness, I think, uh, uh, shaken. For me, it was uh, uh, like when I went to India, I thought I knew what music was all about, and then I encountered a culture where there was no major and minor and cut time and waltz time and so on. And uh, have you had those kind of uh, experiences in your travels? Yes, where you, you take for granted something as being a part of life, and then you see you go to a country where they don't, they don't agree at all. <laughs> they, they don't even have any of the institutions or pay any attention to what you regard as, as absolutely necessary. Uh, the, the, this type of cultural understanding, this understanding of the future direction of the world, I find is now discovered to a great extent in China. Uh, I think it's almost incumbent upon Americans to undertake a trip to China. It's very easy to do so. The the visa takes a couple of weeks. There is no great fuss and bother when you go through customs at the airport of Beijing. But you see a a development that is going to affect the world in the future, the emergence of this incredible economic superpower. You go to cities that are today every bit as modern as Cleveland would be or Kansas City. Uh, You view a very ancient culture whose People are very proud of their ancient cultures, but you also see an attempt to develop a different type of economic system uh, under terrible conditions of political repression. It's it's a fascinating uh, experience, and it's so important that I think all Americans should make an effort to get there. And getting there has never been easier. Uh, the life in China is so inexpensive, with the Chinese currency being so undervalued, that uh, that you live there like you used to live in Europe. You you, you easily find uh, tourist class hotels for thirty and forty dollars a night. Uh, you can get a very good first class hotel for a hundred, a hundred and twenty five dollars a night. Uh, you eat inexpensively. Uh, you you travel around with the almost exactly as you would do in Europe. You confront a terrible language barrier, which is the only problem. That you confront. It's almost and, refreshing to find those rough edges of travel these but days. But that's that's part of the excitement of travel. How dull the world would be if everybody in it spoke spoke English. Man, Europe is all the same coins. There's a Starbucks on every corner. Everybody speaks <laughs> and everyone English. Everyone speaks English. And the trains all run on time. So that was not the case when I when I started writing Europe on five dollars a day. Hasn't that changed, Arthur Fromer? It's been great traveling with you. Where do you travel now? Do you still enjoy getting away from oh, home? Oh yes, I very much travel. I, I get somewhere every month or so at least. I, I travel also within the United States. My wife and I were recently on Sanibel Island, Florida, next door to a magnificent uh, wildlife and nature preserve that we found to be just fascinating. And I'm still writing about travel. I do a twice a week column that is syndicated by uh, King Features around the country. I still appear on the radio about travel. I'm on CBS every weekend on travel. So, um, I don't think I'll ever stop traveling, and I, I continue to like it as much as I ever did. Well, for uh, millions of Americans who have been inspired by uh, your love of travel and your hard work to put all this information together to help travel be accessible, I want to thank you. I want to remind our listeners that they can learn more about what's going on with Arthur Fromer at his website, fromers.com, F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S.com. Rick, that's very kind of you. Okay, Arthur, you know, a, a long, long time ago I was on your TV show, and you... Uh, actually put your arm on my around me at the end of the show and you said uh, the next what do you say the rising star in in travel journalism the next I certainly did and I was and proven program. right <laughs> I was blown away by that and uh, you know you've just been so generous in your support of young travel writers as well as your um, tireless work to help Americans better understand our world and thank you very much for joining us today Rick, thank you very much for having me and uh, best wishes in all your continued work One of the ways we enjoy hearing from you on Travel with Rick Steves is something we call our 15 Seconds of Fame department. Many of our listeners get inspired by their travels and send us an original haiku poem. And a few have tried their hand at being a travel writer and promoting their own hometown. Look for the links in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Submit a paragraph or two about where you live and write it up in a way that makes me want to visit. 
Whether you live in a place that gets its share of travelers and you have some tips on enjoying it through the back door, or even if you live in a place where few people come calling, pretend you're writing for a travel guidebook and give us a peek at the place you call home. Here's an example from a listener's submission to the Where I Live department. This comes to us from Donna Absher in Elkin, North Carolina. The area between Mount Airy, Winston-Salem, and Wilkesboro, North Carolina, at the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains, is the Yadkin Valley, a recognized wine-growing region with its own appellation. Elkin is in the center of the valley and is the eastern trailhead of the National Historic Overmountain Victory Trail. In 1780, local backwoodsmen, called Overmountain Men, formed a militia and marched toward Kings Mountain to turn the tide of the American Revolution. Remnants of the trail still exist as a national park. A celebration every September marks the spot where patriots gathered. The trail continues past Wilkesboro, home of Doc Watson's Merle Fest, an Americana music festival held every April. It's also the birthplace of NASCAR, the early home of Daniel Boone, and also of Tom Dooley of Hang Down Your Head fame, a real man and a real tragedy told in a play every summer at Benton Hall. If the colonial Wild West is overwhelming, don't overlook Surrey County and Mount Airy, boyhood home of Andy Griffith and the basis for the Mayberry TV show. Its Museum of Regional History tells the stories of Scots-Irish settlers making their historic journeys down the wagon road from Pennsylvania. Even the story of Ang and Chang famous Siamese twins who settled, married sisters, and left many descendants. To the south, Winston-Salem was named first for Joseph Winston, a leader of the Overmountain Men, and for the early Moravian settlement of Salem. A visit to Old Salem shows everyday life in the 18th century Moravian town. Sites include the Museum of Early American Southern Decorative Arts and Reynolds Village. You'll have a great time everywhere you look in the Yadkin Valley, in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina. Again, we're hoping to hear from you, whether you have an original haiku poem or if you can bring us up close and personal to the place you call home. Send us your submissions in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Well, isn't it nice that we can dream Of all the places we can see Fly over oceans wide Do all the things we never tried well, Isn't it strange how you can go Back to a home you've never known It's like you were there before A place you've been searching for Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in this series and a link to send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.